This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast and radio show that takes a look at new films in theaters and elsewhere and compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I am a culture writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write a film blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today, it's a regular length edition of the show about extended versions and director's cuts of movies that uh, may or may not improve them at all. We'll find out over the next hour here on Lends Me Your Ears. So Stephen, as you mentioned, we're talking about director's cuts, alternative cuts, extended, unrated. They have many names, uh, but to be honest, here on Lends Me Your Ears, I mean, I think I've spoken about this before when we've talked about some of these films, like we've talked about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, The Final Cut. We've talked about Kingdom of Heaven. There's two examples of films, I think, that are improved by the director having gone back to tinker with them, to re-edit them, to bring them to a different kind of prominence, and then sometimes, in this case, re-release them. But there's, you know, there's only a handful of them that I think, personally, that I prefer to the originals. Um, you know, most of the time, I think I prefer deleted scenes or alternative scenes to be included on a DVD or Blu-ray so I can consider whether they might have improved the film rather than have to watch a whole other version of the film. Um, I, I think what happens is, though, if a film doesn't do that well in theater or if it underperforms relative to expectations, that's when um, the producers, you know, marketing department will get together and say, okay, well, we need to re-release this, but we need to make some changes and maybe that'll that'll uh, appeal to an audience that, that gave it a pass in cinemas. And unfortunately, though, interestingly, I think with the diminishing of the Blu-ray and DVD market, we're seeing a lot less of those now. Now it's just like, it's the prestige films that are being revisited, like like we're going to talk about Godfather 3, Coda, the death of Michael Corleone, and other things that uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and let's face it, most of his films are, are prestige dramas. Um, but yeah, I mean, my favorites, I mentioned a couple of them, obviously Lord of the Rings is one that really benefits from the extended cut if you want to really live in that world. Uh, I think those are, are great. Dark City, the director's cut, Das Boot, Once Upon a Time in America, which we've oh, talked yeah. about. That's much better. Uh, Brazil, of course. But I want to hear, Stephen, what uh, films, if you have a list of, of director's cuts that if you're going back to watch a movie that you love, which version, uh, like the longer the director's cut is the one that you choose? Well, perversely, I like the narration in Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I, you said that. I yeah. have to be that guy. Um, but, <laughs> I, you know, somebody has to be, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh but uh, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting how home video kind of brought around the whole notion of director's cuts. I'm trying to think of how far back they go. I mean, I remember there, there was a big theatrical reissue of Lawrence of Arabia made by David Lean, and he tinkered with it. He fixed some things that were wrong. Like there was a scene where the negative had accidentally been flipped back in you know 1962 or whenever it came out, and and they ha- he actually went back and corrected it when they they do the raid on I think on Aqaba, and they showed the troops going in the wrong direction, and it had been like that for years and years. Um, you know, that, that was more of a restoration than a, than a director's cut, but, but it was, you know, a, an early example that I can think of, of a director going back to a film and, and making alterations to something that a lot of people knew by the back of their hands. Um, 
you know, I, I certainly appreciated the changes made to Blade Runner by Ridley Scott. And uh, my preference was for some sort of weird hybrid of some of the stuff that was added. Um, you know, you, I didn't, you don't really need that footage left over from The Shining, <laughs> that, that, the happy ending. <laughs> which which is what end. he decided after the very, at his very yeah. first director's cut in 1992. Yeah. Um, but but certainly uh, the home video sort of made it possible to easily uh, bring films back to an audience in different forms. Of course, different types of rating systems uh, required different cuts of films. I, I I remember, you know, like Blockbuster wouldn't show anything that was NC-17 or unrated. So you wound up with different cuts of films like um, Day of the Dead, uh, the George Romero, the third film in his zombie um, epic uh, well, trilogy, quadrilogy, whatever it ended up being in the end. But, um, you know, there was a more explicit cut of Day of the Dead that you had to go to the States to buy because it was banned in Ontario. Uh, Reanimator had two different video releases with uh, not just gore and, and sexual material taken out, but with different subplots added back in to the unrated version, um, you know, or to the, the rated version. You actually had to see both to, to get all the material, that kind of thing. And then eventually, you know, laser discs and Criterion coming along meant you started to see more like you say, the prestige films getting re-examined. Blade Runner was certainly the sort of the biggest uh, mass market uh, director's cut that I can think of that uh, really took notice. And then, and, you know, and then Coppola started doing things like Apocalypse Now Redux, you know, where he just kind of went to his uh, big bowl of cutting room floor <laughs> material and just kind of threw a bunch of stuff at it and then re- redid it. We'll talk about that in another segment, but you know, it was, it just, uh, it offered collectors of these films an alternate view of, of titles and, and certainly, you know, gave film buffs more to chew over. And of course it meant that uh, the companies that own the films could sell multiple copies of uh, titles uh, in their library. Uh, weirdly enough, bed knobs and broomsticks by Disney is one that I thought of um, that was, uh, had a, a couple of different cuts. You know, when it premiered, uh, initially it had uh, a longer length of more scenes of the Germans invading England and then Angela Lansbury fighting them off with magic. And then they cut out some of the darker scenes in, in either reissues or later versions of the film. Eventually a DVD came out or a Blu-ray came out that actually included all that material back in and so on. And But it's weird, like you don't hear about that version being any kind of director's cut at all. But, but uh, another thing was films from Hong Kong showing up in different versions and it was hard to track down definitive copies of say John Woo movies like Hard Boiled had a, a cut version that came out initially and then eventually he got to put out the full length version through Criterion uh, on Laserdisc and there's a rumor that it's going to be coming out on a new Blu-ray through Criterion uh, in the near future. So that would be nice to see that film again in high def. You know, and, but there are other things like, uh, for example, The Big Sleep, if you want to go back that far, there's there were two different cuts of that film. And that was a kind of a major revelation when uh, an earlier version of the film surfaced and uh, significantly different in a lot of ways from the classic hard-boiled detective movie that classically makes no sense when you examine <laughs> a lot of the plot elements. And uh, they actually took out a scene where Humphrey Bogart explains a lot of what's going on in the movie um oh that 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 explains why it makes no sense at all well the, <laughs> or the, very little sense there's a scene in the middle of the film if you find the the uh, the pre-release cut there's a scene that's basically a big exposition dump where Humphrey Bogart's telling the DA you know what he's doing with this case and it's it, you kind of watch it and it goes oh it's it's not great drama it's not terribly well filmed um it makes it helps things kind of make more sense but but Hawks decided to take it out or Warner Brothers um you know, the powers of B kind of had the final cut over everything. Uh, and then they amped up the scenes between Bogey and Bacall. So, you know, they added scenes where they had a little more, uh, 
sexual heat between them and uh, and took out a lot of some of the plot points uh and and you kind of need to see both versions uh thankfully they're both on the same disc so that helps but um but the, the you know those are some of the examples of films that i would seek out uh, you know trying to find the best possible version um you know even even if uh, it you know studios seem to be acting against their best self-interests in some cases with some of these titles yeah i i actually want to throw in also aliens uh which is an interesting one because james cameron also prone to messing with his films uh, there's various versions of terminator 2 judgment day uh there's like special edition version and aliens has a special edition which uh is longer and has a whole opening segment on the planet which actually i don't feel adds much to the film but there are the there's the sentry gun segment which i actually think is pretty great so it's almost like there's part of it i like there's part of it i don't uh but mostly it just interrupts the pace of the film is slowed down enough that that it it um that's where i feel like it suffers from the theatrical cut uh but uh, anyway i I think we should get to snyder (laughs) speaking of uh extended (laughs) well you know it's funny the snyder thing reminds me because we're going to talk about obviously this new version of justice league which is zach snyder's justice league that's the official title and uh there's not only a new cut but you can also watch it in color or black and white um but uh you know it reminded me of cameron's the abyss which was a notorious um film that uh, was not completed in time and had to be rush released before Cameron had added all the elements he wanted to add. And then when they finally fixed it up um, post-release and added the actual ending to it, because <laughs> it was missing an ending, uh, I was like, oh, okay, well now I still don't love this film. <laughs> you know, I still find it kind of sour and, and a bit hard to take, but at least it makes sense. And that's kind of where we're going to be. That gives you a foreshadowing of where we're going to be going with, with these Zack Snyder films. Yeah. He, Snyder, uh, you know, famed for, I guess, 300 was his sort of breakthrough. He had done a remake of, I think, Dawn of the Dead previous to that. Yeah. From, a, I believe, a James Gunn script, which is maybe why that film works so well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but 300, you know, the adaptation of the Frank Miller comic. And uh, so that. That was a big success. And then he went on to do other films, Sucker Punch, which I think is pretty much terrible. Um, and uh, But he did an adaptation of Watchmen, which actually has a lot to recommend it. There are multiple versions of that as well. Uh, and then we got into the, the DC cinematic universe. Uh, Man of Steel pretty much stands as its only version that of his films that he hasn't doctored in that that particular universe uh because batman v superman dawn of justice was released in theaters it didn't do very well so an ultimate edition arrived on streaming services and that actually improved it quite a lot and i know you watched it as recently as this morning i've seen it before i'm not gonna go back to that three-hour version of that film because it's i'm glad to have seen it but once was enough uh, but it does help explain a lot of character motivation that were was missing from that first theatrical version. And uh, and I think it is a lot better. So anyway, the fact that it was better actually gave me some hope that Justice League, which otherwise felt like a pretty much rote superhero team up movie, uh, could be improved by Zack Snyder's recut of it, though the four hour version is literally twice as long um it gave me pause but anyway we'll we'll get to that but I, Stephen, what did you make of the extended <laughs> ultimate edition of batman v superman well it's funny because it it is it's a three-hour prelude to a four-hour movie which is and i kind of you know we we watched uh last week we watched uh 
Zack Snyder's Justice League. And, you know, I'm watching Batman v Superman going, going, ah, because I did see it in the theater and that's the only version I've seen up to now. And I was kind of going, ah, I kind of wish I'd watched the three hour version of Batman v Superman prior to watching Justice League. Not in the same day. <laughs> that would be foolhardy. <laughs> I, I even have my doubts that you should watch Justice League uh, in the same day. Uh, you know, when it offers up these handy uh, chapters, you can you can stretch it out over time. But but um, but I forgot how much sort of world building and, and foreshadowing happens in Batman v Superman that leads to um, what we eventually see in Zack Snyder's Justice League. I mean, we have the, the post-apocalyptic nightmare stuff, the, or the, you know, nightmare with a K, because uh, it's Batman, um, you know, imagining this evil Superman future that supposedly was going to be the next Justice League movie. And, and also, uh, you know, we see the mother box um, show up in Star Labs when, um, you know, Cyborg is, is uh, there's some footage of, uh, cyborg's dad whose name you know joe morton is the actor i can't remember his character's name but he's he's putting cyborg together and he somehow he's he's found this mother mother box which of course is a big key to uh justice league uh and 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 other elements in the film obviously you know wonder woman makes an appearance and then we see a both batman and wonder woman looking at surveillance camera footage of of aquaman the flash and of course cyborg uh in the lab and so on so um you know, it is kind of key to uh, to Zack Snyder's Justice League, both and and the original version, the, the or not the original, but the Josh Joss Whedon version. Um, so I kind of wish I'd watched it before that. And uh, but it is, it does make more sense. Uh, I mean, there was a lot stuffed into that movie. I mean, it was pretty, you can tell it was meant to be a three hour movie. It's not a matter of taking stuff out that was better left out and and putting it back in just to create a, a director's cut that Snyder actually, you know, obviously intended this version to be the one that people saw because everything is so interconnected between, you know, Lois Lane's investigations and Lex Luthor's behind the scenes machinations. And there are all these wheels within wheels in the film. And, and uh, which is, it helps explain why the film, uh, you know, felt like such a lame duck when it came out originally um, just because, you know, all we focused on the fact that was Batman hates Superman and vice versa and they have to fight and it you know and it's just plot points pointing them towards a big punch out when you think that both are reasonable men and and could figure this out some other way because <laughs> they're supposed to be intelligent um but uh but at least this lays more groundwork for for you know what Lex Luthor is doing even though he he's still supremely annoying as played by Jesse Eisenberg um but uh, at least, at least you understand his plot and 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 all the um, sort of finer points of it, uh, and what he's after. Uh, they they come into sharper focus definitely in this version, and and some of the and some of the sub, you know, some of the minor characters you know get a little bit more to do, and we even get a few characters that were completely omitted. Um, you know, there's a woman from Africa who's got some evidence as to what really happened when. You know, Superman went there to stop some terrorists and save Lois Lane, even though I couldn't save Jimmy Olsen. That was kind of a rude awakening. What uh, the fate of Jimmy Olsen in, in Batman v Superman? Um, and uh, it's you know, as much as I dislike Batman v Superman, at least I felt like 
you know, I was a little more clued in from watching the longer version. Yeah, for me, it was bringing it up a star rating, basically. I still think the film has problems, but I, I liked it a lot more. And all the things you just said about Bat- Batman v Superman could apply to the longer version of Justice League. It makes more sense. Characters have more moments where you really feel like you're connected to them. Uh, the plotting works better. The uh, motivations of the villains, especially, we get a lot more time uh, understanding, for instance, uh, why Steppenwolf, who is voiced by Kieran Hines, an amazing actor who really doesn't get to shine much doing his voice for this character. (laughs) But, um, you know, he looks, Steppenwolf looks a lot better. They've definitely put a lot more money into the special effects so that the villains, the parademons, they all look, they all jump out at you a lot more. And and then we also get Darkseid, who is hinted at back at Batman v Superman, and he finally appears, and he is the big bad behind the big bad. So that makes a lot more sense and he's a lot more threatening and when the villains the antagonists are much more there's they're more frightening i feel like we become more invested in the hero's journey and that's definitely a big part of why uh zack snyder's justice league works better than the cinematic theatrical version from four three four years ago um is it better enough to justify a four-hour running time I don't think so. I feel I still think there was stuff they could have definitely pulled out yes. of this. But then I think, you know, I think you describe this as an assembly cut. And that's a term that I learned through uh, Blade Runner, because if you buy the deluxe edition of Blade Runner, there's briefcase. Also, there's like the assembly <laughs> cut, right, which is basically the director putting everything in that they shot that helps make the movie what it is. And then a good editor comes in and trims it down to make it a more uh, functional, a successful uh, viewing experience, storytelling experience for the audience. And I feel like that's an important thing. I still think an editor could have come into Zack Snyder's Justice League four-hour cut and given it a good slice, lost a good hour, and made it better. And still, it would have been better than the cinematic version. So, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad we saw it. And and despite, you know, putting aside all the politics of the fan demands and release the Snyder Cut and all that nonsense that, uh, that bubbled up on the internet in a way that... Uh, you know that was pretty controversial in some ways. I think uh, I think it's I think it's better, and I think it shows that Snyder does have a vision. I'm not always on board with it, but that guy does have a style. Yeah, I, I, I'm not fond of his Ayn Randian, Nietzschean, nihilistic, you know, <laughs> kind of approach to these characters. Uh, I, I I I feel like his take on Superman, even though I'm not a big Superman fan, I, I'm more, I was always more of a Batman guy, but. But I feel like his take on Superman is pretty wrong-headed a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, you know, it's I, I got to say, it's to Henry Cavill's credit that, you know, he can still make him appealing on some level with what he's got to work with. But I just I just wonder, you know, seeing Henry Cavill in, in, in a well-written Superman role would be so much better because he does suit the character very well and um, and somehow succeeds in spite of everything else he's he's got to deal with um you know especially in this film where he's you know we don't see him for the first is it like two hours before yeah, pretty much or maybe more uh, and until we you know because of course spoiler alert <laughs> you know we we don't have a Superman at the end of Batman v Superman and then of course we got to spend a lot of time figuring out how to bring him back in uh, in Justice League and um 
you know, I'd, I'd, I'd listened to, uh, I've listened to a couple of other podcasts discussing the film. I, I liked one that sort of went on a, down a lengthy rabbit hole comparing it to Wagnerian opera and, uh, you know, the ring cycle, and, uh, you know, with, to substitute, uh, you know, the mother boxes for the ring, you know, as, as the MacGuffin of choice. And then you kind of are getting into the ballpark of, of I think, what uh, Snyder's going after. And, you know, I, I guess if you approach it on that terms, it's a little more palatable. Uh you know, but it, I do like the fact that it does make more sense. Although I, I you know, I, I, I feel like Whedon at least tried to inject some more humanity into it when, with his version. Of course, you know, anything he shot has been expunged. I believe I don't think there's anything of, of what he added to uh, what Snyder had shot uh, remaining. But you know, th- you know, Aquaman is a f- pretty different character in the two versions. Um, you know, he was, you know, he had that more of that gung-ho surfer dude kind of quality in in the in the later version um uh, that is gone he's very dour and hates humanity but he also hates you know his uh uh atlantean uh, heritage you know because his mother was never there for him and all that kind of stuff everybody's got parent parental issues yeah in this <laughs> you know which is uh, you know uh, i guess it's a, just a, it's something that i have problems with um in, in terms of motivation, because it just seems like such a cheap card to play. And here it seems to play it. Uh, Wonder Woman is the only one that seems to have a healthy relationship with her, at least her mother. Um, she can't go and see anymore because she can't return to Paris. She can't return to yeah. uh, Thermopolis. Um, Themyscira? <laughs> Themyscira. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I was going to get that wrong. Um, um, but, uh, you know, so she, I guess she has an issue in that sense. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, having quadruple parent parental issues <laughs> among the male heroes anyway in this film is you know is just one of the things on the sour taste in my mouth list that uh, that goes along with this film but uh yeah it, it's uh at least it feels more whole and i felt like i was being carried through the story in a more smooth fashion if you will rather than fits and starts which is the sense i got uh from the previous film i still have issues with the fact that it's so similar to some of the avengers stuff you know like it just has such an age of ultron feel about it in some ways which uh you know was not a good avengers film or certainly a lesser one um and you know, you know the thanos versus um steppenwolf you know they're, they're so similar in dark so many side ways. but but well well yeah well in the original and now we've got dark side as thanos as opposed to in the previous version where it steppenwolf just felt like a poor imitation of thanos at least dark side is on similar footing with that character in terms of legacy and lore and all that kind of thing. And, and Steppenwolf just seemed like a dud of a, of a bad guy. He's mm. just a big lumbering oaf with, with, you know, who looks like, uh, a, a chrome plated version of, uh, of, uh, the, the demon in legend <laughs> kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, like it just, right. uh, you know, it, it just didn't, he didn't seem to be a very original, uh, villain. He wasn't a very charismatic villain. He's not an interesting villain. Um, he's just a force that they have to take down. And I, I think that was another issue I had with the film. But, um, you know, at, at least the the flow from Batman v Superman to this film and, and how they form part of a bigger picture may, makes more sense. And it's it is a better saga for what it's worth. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And I want to touch on one thing before we got to move on. But, yeah. but uh, one thing before we go is that I think there's a crazy irony. You mentioned the Avengers and how much 
Zack Snyder's Justice League, the long version, is takes cribs from the Avengers. There's a weird irony that they hired the Avengers yeah. director, Joss Whedon, to make Justice League work for the big screen, and he made it less like the Avengers in some ways. And when Zack Snyder came back to do his own version, he made it more like the Avengers <laughs> because he gave the characters more uh, emotional connection. And that felt more like the Avengers in a weird way. Like it just the anyway, it's the whole thing is strangely perverse. Uh, but yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, it seems like Whedon added quips. <laughs> he added some jokes, punched up the script with some jokes and added that Russian family towards the end. <laughs> and those seem to be the major contributions. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Today, we're looking at extended versions, director's cuts, um, super unseen bootleg versions, <laughs> whatever you want to... <laughs> I, I guess that was the almost famous was, was the... The, the un, untitled cut. The untitled yeah. cut, um, and, uh, and and so on and so forth. We're, we're, we're looking at this propensity of both filmmakers and Hollywood uh, studios uh, to go back to films uh, that were perfectly fine the first time around and, and uh or or were troubled productions and try and the untitled cut is better i think you know just i'm just gonna put that out there in case we don't talk about oh, it for it, the rest of the show i think that uh cameron crowe's uh almost famous untitled cut is awesome well yeah. if you can get more of philip seymour hoffman as lance as um as uh, lester, lester, lester banks yeah yeah, um, yeah then 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 you're you're ahead of the game for sure exactly yeah um but uh in this segment uh we're going to be talking about a guy who cannot stop meddling <laughs> with his films and uh he's just as bad as his friend george lucas and that is francis ford coppola who has um you know thankfully left godfather and godfather part two mostly alone although he has issued versions of it um, where he's re-edited them in chronological order and there were TV versions that had extra footage and you know there are multiple versions of those films but for the most part the definitive versions are the original theatrical releases but uh, that all seemed to change with uh, with Apocalypse Now which uh, you know looked like a disaster from every angle it, it was the, the the production was a nightmare uh it was besieged by weather problems problems with the philippine uh, army which were helping to portray the i guess the vietnamese army um <laughs> of course it was the regime of um the marcos family you know notorious tyrants who uh, i'm sure also brought uh, their own set of issues <laughs> to trying to make a movie there at the time uh and then it came out and it was hailed as a masterpiece and even at the time it was released there were two versions because there was a the 35 millimeter prints and the 70 millimeter prints had some significant differences i think the 70 millimeter prints ended with the destruction of the village at the end or the compound where kurtz is uh is found uh, is is shown to explode um and you know in a napalm raid at the very end which wasn't in the, the other version and and so on and then um but but that you know that's that's a pretty obscure detail but he did revisit that material later for uh apocalypse now redux uh, now what happened was there was a documentary called hearts of darkness about the making of apocalypse now it's one of the best documentaries about filmmaking uh that you can see especially um you know where it shows how many times this thing went off the rails where like one of its major stars left the project another had a heart attack uh, martin sheen you know, had a heart attack on set and and all these horrible things are happening um but it also included some glimpses of some unseen uh, material like a, a scene set on a french plantation 
along the river. We got to see some of that uh, much talked about footage in Hearts of Darkness. So there are always, uh, you know, rumors of different versions of the film. There were bootlegs circulating of an assembly cut that was something like five hours long, um, which I did get to see part of. And for example, like when uh, Martin Sheen is in his hotel room at the start of the film, uh, that scene goes on for over half an hour. <laughs> you know way beyond what it needs to do but that's that's you know it wasn't meant to be seen by the public so redux you know did some stuff where it added the french plantation scene back in and people finally got to see that um added more stuff towards the end i think it changed the order of some scenes and so on um and it it was interesting but a bit much it, it didn't surpass the theatrical version the french plantation scene while having a very interesting quality uh on its own it was well filmed it was kind of beautiful it added this weird sense of romance to the film but at the same time it would just stop the, the story dead in its tracks it wasn't necessarily well written and uh you could see why they opted to take it out the first time around so um and then finally he one last time took another kick at the can fairly recently in the last couple of years with apocalypse now the final version the final cut i guess the final version i think final, final cut? cut i think yeah yeah <laughs> um and uh and i got to see that and i got to see it in the they showed it in imax here in halifax so that was a treat just to see the film on a big screen uh you know and and, and uh even though it wasn't the original version it was great to experience this kind of new more streamlined version of the longer cut um and it, it was enjoyable but but things like you know this goofy scene where they steal uh robert duvall's surfboard um you know was felt stuck out like a sore thumb the french plantation scene again stops the movie dead in its tracks intriguing though it may be um and, and makes a strong case for deleted scenes as opposed to uh reincorporating uh footage that was deemed inessential and 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 so it was a great experience to see it especially uh theatrically with with the new uh, sound mix and all that kind of thing but again I, I find that yeah the original theatrical version is the way to go yeah and i agree with you there here's the thing about the redux version which i'm gonna make a i'm gonna say that's the version that i like the most in a way and it's just it's a practical reason it's because when you get the dvd or the blu-ray of the redux version the added scenes on in the scene selection are colored differently. So you can go through it scene by scene and watch the ones that have been reintroduced, or you can skip them. Or if you want, you can watch just those. You can go scene by scene and it'll tell you which one's new, which is super helpful if you're interested in comparing this version to other versions. So that's, I, I haven't, I didn't go and watch the, the final cut because I felt like I really had the whole film right there for me. Even as much as Francis Ford Coppola may have wanted me to see his <laughs> final version, this is the one that I, that works for me. Um, I want to say that I watched the Cotton Club Encore uh, recently. This is available now. It's uh, it's on um, Amazon Prime. And this is a film I hadn't seen since it first came out in the 80s. I mean, I had a very vague recollection of it. But I watched it again, and it's a real, a real charmer. This is one that Coppola went back to rework sometime, I guess, at least 10 years ago, and uh, re-released uh, and it is, um, I guess, from what I understand, what I've read is that the original version had some cuts made to some of the musical numbers. It's set in a Harlem club in the 30s, wherein all the performers are African-American and then the audience is all white. And there's this tension between these sort of two worlds. And the story is told through the eyes of a dancer, Gregory Hines, uh, who performs at the club, who is a local Harlem dancer. And he's super talented there with his brother, his actual brother, uh, plays plays the role. And, uh, and then 
uh, Richard Gere, who is a trumpeter, he does not play in the club, but he, c- he can come as as an audience member. Uh, and he gets involved with a gangster, and then um, Diane Lane's uh, sort of uh, mall he has to take care of. And there's these parallel stories that actually, I think, work pretty well. But in the version I saw, um, this is both both stories get sort of equal time, and I gather that wasn't the case with the the original. Yeah, I think Gregory Hines' story is a lot more fleshed out, which is great because he's way more charismatic than Richard Gere. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, I mean, Richard Gere is fine. Um, you know, he he's not my favorite actor in the world. I mean, he is great in certain things. Uh, certainly, Days of Heaven. And um, you know, American Gigolo, he was perfect for that role. But, but in Internal Affairs, there's a great. Film. Oh yes, yes, He's really good in that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of run hot and cold with him. He's not always the best, and he's fine here. His character is a is a jazz trumpeter uh, who's who becomes a movie star, loosely based on George Raft, who used to hang out with gangsters in New York before he became uh, known as as kind of a, a, a hoofer, a dancer, and then a Hollywood extra, and then eventually a, a, a movie star, frequently playing gangsters and dancers and so on. Um, and, and then we have real life characters like Dutch Schultz, who was a real life uh, gangster who had a very colorful life. And some of that is captured here. He's he's extremely ferocious. At one point, he stabs one of his rivals in the throat in a scene that uh, has been, uh, I believe, enhanced or, you know, has put the violence back into it for this version. It's pretty intense. And it's pretty yeah. shocking. Yeah. Uh, like, and because it happens all of a sudden out of the blue, it's, you know, it's a really well done scene, actually. Um, and uh, and uh, the fact that the music really lifts up a film that I think without it uh, would have seemed a lot darker and a lot more downbeat and uh, it provides a better balance uh, to the events that are going on, which can be pretty grim from time to time. So I, I, I feel like uh, I feel like the changes that were made, like I said, I haven't seen the original version in a long, long time. It was another famously troubled production in terms of like they, they ran out of money while they were making it. There was a murder of one of the producers. I mean, it was... I believe there's a there's a book about it, and it's it's one of the, the classic, uh, you know, film productions gone wrong kind of stories. Um, and uh, and and in this case, uh, you know, the, I feel like this new version, which you can also get on a Blu-ray, which is what I wound up doing. Um, I, I feel it does kind of revive the film. Uh, you know, I think it um, recesses or rejuvenates rejuvenates its reputation a little bit. Um, you know, there's more humor in it, I think. I love the scenes with Bob Hoskins, who runs the Cot Club, with his kind of right-hand man, played by Fred Gwynn from the Munsters. Uh, They're you know, great. They're so good together. They're so great together. Yeah. They have a kind of a Laurel and Hardy kind of quality uh, between them. And, um, you know, there's even and, – and, and you know, you even get Nicolas Cage at the very start of his career playing a trigger-happy mobster based on maybe Machine Gun Kelly, maybe. I'm trying to think. Or Mad Dog somebody or other anyway he's he's based on a real life gangster even though he's not named by him but he's he's basically the brother of richard gear who just goes down the wrong path and 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 uh cage is still kind of finding his way as, as an actor at this point but it's fun to watch him in, in any rate and i don't know if they put in extra footage of him back in because of who he would later come to be but it is kind of fun to watch him we even get to see sofia coppola get machine gunned in one scene this does she, she i she, didn't even see that i didn't know you, you that. barely notice she's an extra in a scene where a character is uh getting gunned down and and she <laughs> sophia couple just plays a kid on the sidewalk who gets machine gunned and, oh gosh yes now i'm thinking of it i yeah i'm remembering that scene for sure okay <laughs> i just didn't realize that was her but uh yeah well, you know gotta get those family the family in there and um and uh, yeah whatever coppola 
did and thankfully was able to do in terms of you know getting the footage and matching because sometimes this the, finding the old footage especially of a film that's passed through different hands can be a, a real nightmare hope so I, I think maybe he learned from past experience and held on to everything and was able to make a film that that looks great um everything matches and it's got a lot more energy i find than uh, than what it had previously yeah i i mean i again i can't compare it to the original because it's been too long but i really enjoyed this version uh and i wanted to mention lawrence fishburne lisa jane perskin yes. who's an actor who i've always enjoyed when i've seen her and jennifer gray tom waits is in it uh, and gwen verdon verdon who plays dixie's mother that's the uh um uh that's the trumpeter's mom uh uh she was apparently a dancer in the old days back in the mgm days so she gets a moment towards the end of this film to to dance a little bit which is terrific um anyway you mentioned uh sofia coppola we, we should move on to yes. godfather part three otherwise known as godfather uh coda the death of michael corleone this is the third edition of the godfather it was released originally in 1990 it was famously not as well received by audiences or critics when it came out as compared to those first two films which are pretty much unimpeachable they are amazing films still uh, so but it does have a lot going for it certainly al pacino gives a great performance revisiting his sort of you know the character that made him and, and but it's a film full of regret and darkness and it's about him not being able to to uh forgive himself or uh you know get past the mistakes of his past and his family uh and it also famously was supposed to star winona ryder as his daughter and she got sick she had to bail out of the film she she i think it was exhaustion she was actually on her way to rome to shoot and she couldn't work so in a pinch coppola put uh, sophia coppola his daughter in the role and she's a teenager at the time and she was she was like raked over the coals uh she her performance was really given a hard time that must have been really rough for a teenager watching it again you can see that she's not the most um experienced actor no. like she she's doesn't have a lot of nuance she has a lot of warmth actually i think her scenes between her and andy garcia who plays her cousin who she falls in love with he he has ambitions to be a gangster he has ambitions to power and michael sees that and doesn't want the two of them together and that creates some problems but their scenes together are actually i think really pretty great in either version but um yeah they have a scene know. together in a kitchen that's where there's some real warmth and chemistry there and you just kind of wish that had radiated throughout the rest of her role but she was really thrown into the deep end and and you know if you watch it knowing that you have some sympathy for her and you don't uh, you don't let it affect you too much watching the film yeah yeah and of course she later became a big name in fashion and then a big name in as a director i mean she's a super talented director and writer so obviously talent was there um but uh but yeah the film just doesn't quite gel the way the previous films did now the new version of it i think is an improvement uh it it streamlines elements at the beginning of the film which i think work better and i think just renaming it coda i mean this is this is a this is a weird argument i guess yeah. but renaming it instead of having it being part three in, in a three part it's it's almost like okay we've gone away from this for a while now we're coming back to sort of wrap it up and uh and that gives it a separate feel to the first two films it's not necessarily a third part this is just kind of a a wrap-up which makes you think differently about the film and i think it changes your expectations and i think that's why the film actually does work if you think about it in those terms and this remix or this recut 
actually helps it. I don't, it's not a dramatic change. It's a little shorter, the new film. And I think it works a little better for having taken out some elements that maybe weren't as successful. Uh, some flashback elements to the second film, for instance, aren't necessary. Um, overall, I enjoyed the film. It is very operatic. The end scene on the stairs with after the opera where someone is shot, uh, I won't say who, but there is, there is violence, is, is, and where, where the characters sort of mimic what they've just seen on the, on the stage is a little on the nose. <laughs> but uh but, but you know very well done very well done yeah yeah so anyway, what did you think of it steven yeah that's that's a that's it's very well done is it's, <laughs> it's kind of it's talk about damning with faint praise you know it's it's the, the musical equivalent of well you guys look like you're having a lot of fun up on stage <laughs> you know when you see a band you're trying to think of something nice to say mm-hmm. um the, the, you know i I feel like this is a an improved version of the film. Uh, I, I remember seeing it when it came out and, you know, having that feeling of disappointment, even though it does end with this bravura, you know, clockwork uh, timed sequence at the, the opera, which is, you know, which is a wonderfully directed and edited sequence. It's very well done. Um, but uh, I, I felt like it was a, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, certainly Sophia's Coppola's performance didn't help that uh, impression, you know, uh, seeing it the first time. And I, I, I find that it's just, this is a tighter version. It uh, focuses more on its themes of corruption. Um, Michael Corleone's actual plan makes a lot more sense here than it did, I think, originally, you know, that, that he was trying to become the controlling interest in this corporation that's aligned with the Vatican bank. I mean, at the time it just felt like the trade route arguments in the star Wars prequels. Uh, just, just my eyes were glazing over. I just didn't care. Um, but here at least, you know, by starting with the, the scene between him and the archbishop talking about, you know, how he can align himself with the Vatican bank and get approval for this merger of his interests with the, with the, uh, Euro corporation. That's also part of the bank. Uh, you know, that whole thing at least makes sense and, and, and how that meshes with his desire to be completely free of, of the old school, New York crime families, um, you know, building up to a scene where they're all gathered in Atlantic city and, and all hell breaks loose. Um, you know, his, you know, you understand his, motivation a lot better you know as he's trying to pay everybody off from selling off the gambling interests and all that kind of thing and uh yeah and and it just uh it rearranges some stuff and moves along a lot better Uh, i do find it interesting that uh the for a film that's subtitled the death of michael corleone um the actual his actual last scene is truncated in in this new version where it was much more explicit uh in the uh the last version of it that came out because there actually was an intermediary version between the theatrical version and this new version there was actually the the video version is actually longer i think he added some stuff back to it i think maybe to flesh out to andy garcia's role more than anything um because i don't even know how well i remembered that he was actually sonny's illegitimate son uh yeah, so, that, that was a, that was an element of it. Sure, I, I feel like I feel like I I really didn't understand Andy Garcia's character very much in the very original theatrical cut, and then they added more of his stuff back in to the initial home video version, and 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 here it all just kind of fits in a lot better. So, um, you know, it's certainly even if you have mixed feelings about The Godfather Three, it's certainly worth a revisit. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. 
Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So here on Lends Me Your Ears, we're talking about director's cut. We're talking about alternate cuts uh, today. And we're now moving on to the third chapter in our our, our look back. And uh, we're considering Michael Mann's film. Now, I'm so glad we've had an opportunity to talk about Michael Mann. He's a filmmaker over the years, has really has given us a lot of terrific feature films. Uh, he is also prone, however, to mess with some of his features. Um, going back to Manhunter from 1986, I don't think that it wasn't his first film, not a very feature film, maybe I think second or third. But, um, you, you know, he, he, uh, he, he, there is a variety of versions of this, though each version is sl- only slightly different from the other. It's really a question of a couple of scenes or even just shorter scenes that have been cut together for television or different uh, the, uh, cinematic versions, or I should say different uh, home video versions. And we're talking about a matter of maybe three minutes of uh, difference between different versions. So it's you might be watching it and not even know which version you're watching, and that's fair. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he didn't actually start to make real differences until Last of the Mohicans. But yeah, uh, but yeah I mean... Um, well, I think the joke with Manhunter is that you know, Dino De Laurentiis bought the book Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, the, the book that comes before Silence of the Lambs, and then, you know, got Ma- Michael Mann to make a pretty faithful adaptation of the book. And then, you know, when the film was basically taken away from Michael Mann, De Laurentiis removed all the references to the Red Dragon. <laughs> that were, oh, that's and right. then that's why they had to change it to Manhunter, because all the references to Dollarhide, the serial killer, being obsessed with William Blake's The Red Dragon, to the point where he actually you know, gets the original print of, of from William Blake and, you know, he has it tattooed on his back and then he actually eats the the drawing by Blake, uh, which is in the subsequent versions, both uh, the film Red Dragon that was remade with Anthony Hopkins reprising his role as Lecter and then on the show Hannibal where the, the last season, half of it is basically retelling the story of Red Dragon. So, um, but Manhunter, you know, takes all that stuff out so we don't necessarily understand dollar high he's just a maniac we don't really understand his motivation all that clearly and uh and most of that footage is gone like any any version that's come out and it but it hasn't been michael mann doing it it's been like various video companies like anchor bay and then shout shout factory i think got it later and they were able to scrape together some footage from video prints of different cuts and anyway so so either way you look at it it's going to be a jumble but it's uh, you know you can still enjoy it on some level but but you're right last of the mohicans was kind of a big deal um when it uh came out and then he basically kept at it yeah and it's an incredible film i mean he really you i think he was really hitting his stride in 1994 when it came out because it's the film is an adaptation of the james fenmore cooper's novel about the family of mohican warriors a, a father uh two sons one of whom is hawkeye who was adopted from a settler family and how they get stuck between the british and french forces in 1757 it's gorgeous romantic period drama it's also a war movie and it's kind of an action movie too, the way it's paced. Um, and there are at least three separate versions of it. There's the theatrical cut, which sadly I'm not sure is even available anymore on if any you, platform. 
you can get it on it's what came out initially on vhs and laserdisc so right I, and I, i've toyed with the idea of tracking down the laserdisc uh because you still have a laserdisc player i still have a laserdisc player uh uh but I'm fine with the latest Blu-ray. I'd, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's really going to, and they're cheap on eBay. You can probably get a Laserdisc copy for five or six bucks, but, and, and then pay 25 bucks shipping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's like, yeah, I'm not that keen. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's, I would like to see the original theatrical cut again, just because it's been so long. And that was, of course, the first version I fell in love with. And I think if there's any argument be, to be made against these various director's cuts, it's that the original cuts of things have a tendency to vanish. Um, and this is one of those cases, and that's frustrating to me. But anyway, there was a second version, the director's expanded edition, where man cut a few moments but added material to other scenes. And then there's the final director's definitive cut, which is closer, in fact, to the original theatrical edition. In 2010, man basically went back in and returned to the film a version. He made a version that's much closer to the original theatrical cut. Uh, so... Anyway, there are elements of each cut that I like, and so I'm not going to necessarily direct people to any one in specific. I think the, the one that's most recent, which I think is the one available on streaming services now, the definitive cut, is is pretty great. It, it includes the final um, uh, monologue. There's a film-closing monologue from Chingachgook, uh, uh, played by Russell Means, that I think I really appreciate. Um, and the final version also returns the Clanad song, I Will Find You, which I also think is essential. Um, it doesn't return all of the lines of dialogue that uh, Hawkeye, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, gets to say in those early cuts. I think there was some criticism that some of the dialogue was a little too contemporary, and I think maybe... I think Michael Mann might have responded to that and thought maybe maybe they're right. Maybe it does sound too much like an, you know, stuff you'd see in an action movie from mm -hmm. the era. But um, overall, the film is still incredibly potent. It's gorgeously shot. And uh, it has, you know, it has an incredible work. Madeline Stowe is especially good in this, uh, an actor who we don't see a nearly enough of anymore. Yeah, I I guess, well, I guess that intermediary cut that came out, he took out a lot of the humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe went too far because he put some humor back in. Not all of the lines and things that are specifically meant to kind of lighten the mood. Um, not all of it went back into the uh, director's definitive cut. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to reference my Blu-ray copy there. Um, but uh, but there are you know there are some lines that you know Daniel Day Lewis kind of verbally sparring with the, the British officers. You know some of that went back in there. <laughs> There's some some fun jabs at the French that I think might be new to this latest version that may not have been in any previous version. One one of the the officers makes fun of the French, you know, saying they'd rather make love with their faces than fight, which <laughs> right. is which is pretty funny and feels kind of it's funny but still feeling authentic to the period in in some way. Um, and uh, and I feel like it does a pretty decent job without being too jarring in, in its cuts or additions or whatever. So I, I the, the most recent version that's out there, whether you get it on Blu-ray or watch it on a service, I think is, uh, is a pretty satisfying version of the film overall. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you're a fan of Canadian, you know, history and American history, there's a lot here. I mean, it's, I think there's some creative license going on, but, uh, you know, Wolf, a, a big name in in uh, in the history of Canada is one of the characters in the yeah in the Mont Montcalm uh, actually shows up and is a major character the French general who I think died on the plains of Abraham if I'm not mistaken um, and uh, yeah and I think it I, I don't know how accurate it is in terms of the history but it it feels like they they at least 
trying to get the characters and the dates and the feel of it correct on some level. I mean, Michael Mann is such a perfectionist that it's hard to imagine otherwise, but um, but there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so we should maybe close our look back at uh, director's cut and uh, uncut and all these <laughs> alternate cuts um, and, and discussing Michael Mann, uh, Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which I think I might have brought up on this uh, podcast previously. It is maybe my favorite film of his, one of them, certainly. And, you know, which is, I think, unusual. I think when people talk about their favorite Michael Mann films, they usually point at Heat. They might uh, consider Last Mohicans or even Collateral with Tom Cruise, who plays a hitman terrorizing cab driver Jamie Foxx. These are all obviously great films, but almost no one will mention Miami Vice, which was a cinematic theatrical feature film version of Michael Mann's famed TV series from the 80s, which in many ways has dated, you know, the costumes, um, the whole era of the 80s with its synth music and oversized blazers yes all of that all the pastels and all that stuff is has aged poorly but <laughs> Mac, michael mann who took it very seriously the first time takes it very seriously again with this feature film and i love miami vice when i saw it in cinemas and a lot of it has to do with the way it's shot. Uh, Michael Mann used Thompson Viper digital cameras to shoot the film. Uh, you know, reviewers often use the cliche, the city is a character in the picture. I'm probably done that myself. But in these, in this picture, the amazing cameras and the creativity of DP Dion Beebe and Mann, they, they work to create this, they shoot a lot of stuff just before dawn. And so the the South Florida sky and is really just present. It's often flecked with lightning and shades of purple and blue. And this is the stuff that these digital cameras really pick up in this really textured way that creates this feeling along with the soundtrack and then the performances. I mean, this is just basically a cop drama that has elements of espionage going on in it. Um, and it's about deceit and it's about people risking their lives. And there's a romantic element in some ways actually it's it's probably the most like last the mohicans just in the way that it mixes all these genres together it's an astonishing movie now we are talking today about ways in which there's different versions well the theatrical cut is the version that i love i think it's only available on dvd and it starts with the film and they're in the nightclub in Miami and uh, our two heroes, uh, Crockett and Tubbs, <laughs> Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx are trying to do a deal with a drug dealer to, to, to basically capture, and with their whole team, they're trying to capture these, these bad guys and they get a call and that changes everything. It's kind of the inciting incident. Um, and uh, there is a different version that came out on Blu-ray, which is the director's cut, and it has a different start, different beginning with an added scene. And I don't find that added scene does much for me. I'd be interested in hearing what you think, Stephen, because I know you just recently revisited well, it. Well, yeah. I, well, this is the only version I've seen, which is the unrated director's edition, which is uh, the, I have it on a DVD. I got it at Giant Tiger for five bucks or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't think this movie was a big hit. I, I think that uh, Universal thought that uh, there was going to be a lot of nostalgia for the original show. And, uh, you know, of course, two high-powered stars, Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, um, who I don't feel have a ton of chemistry together, not in the, in the same way that uh, Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas did on the TV show. But, of course, they had a whole, you know, series to establish that, whereas here we kind of have to get going from the get-go. But, but you know, I did enjoy this uh, very uh, 
very full portrayal of this twilight world that they exist in, you know, where they're, they're in this shadowy realm between law enforcement and, and drug lords. And I, I found that the, uh, the, you know, as opposed to justice league with uh, Steppenwolf, the, the bad guys here are actually pretty charismatic and interesting uh, that, that, you know, they, they at least go to great lengths to make them smart and very good at what they do. And, you know, very elaborate in their, um, setups and and in their transactions and it felt the very detail oriented that the details um you know felt very if not authentic at least they made sense uh in the course of this film so and i and i gather that uh aside from that opening scene that there aren't that drastic the changes aren't that drastic no there aren't if you go online of course you can find a list of all the changes and they're some of them are really minor like that you know they don't show them going into a hotel they just show them coming into a room and that kind of thing and but but uh i didn't mind the cigarette boat uh race opening it i mean it provides a credit sequence pretty much and you know you kind of establishes some characters earlier on that we meet later in the film and um it's one of the last looks we get at daylight (laughs) because so much of this film takes place at night and as you say in the shadowy hours before dawn and that kind of thing so it you know it functions as kind of us entering that uh, nighttime world when we get to the nightclub and things start to go wrong and start to take shape for our heroes uh in terms of this case they're pursuing so I, I don't mind that opening scene, but again, I have not seen the original theatrical version and I'm, I'm, I'm quite, quite good with this, this version, but it, it, it still, it still manages to have a fair bit of momentum, like you say, in the way that, that heat does. But, but this film, I, I find it, uh, it doesn't try to ape the franchise. It's not like a jokey reference. It's not like the 21 jump street movies. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's Starsky it's, and Hutch. Yeah. It, it takes its subject matter pretty seriously. And I think that was the right way to go with this stuff. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. I think if there's a problem with the film in retrospect, it's a lot of tough guy posturing. And if you're not on board with that, I mean, the, the key female characters are too often. I think Michael Mann's like Martin Scorsese in that way. He tells stories of men where too often the women are only there to suffer and need rescuing uh, two key female roles. Elizabeth and Naomi Harris is Trudy start on the level equals with the men um, but in the end become kind of pawns I think only uh, Gina played by Elizabeth Rodriguez provides a toughness and capability that's consistent through the movie and there's a great scene where she takes down a neo-Nazi thug in a trailer park with just like an incredible scene um, anyway overall I would really recommend people whatever version you can see of Miami Vice and if you're interested in this Please check it out. It is, I would go even go as far to say that it's kind of a lost classic from Michael Mann and, uh, and deserves to be checked out. Thank you so much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. We uh, have really enjoyed going back to watch these various versions of uh, alternative versions of films, and hopefully you uh, might want to check some of them out yourself. Um, we are available on social media. Lens Me Your Ears has a Facebook page. We are also on Twitter. And uh, my Twitter account is Flaw in the Iris. It's named after my blog. That's where you can find me. And mine is at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We want to thank CKDU uh, for the studio facilities now that we are able to get back, especially able to get back into the studio and uh, record face-to-face once again after a long time doing it remotely. That's awesome. Thank you, CKDU. And also thanks for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. Many thanks to our producers at Village Soundcast Network. And thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 
Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.